Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. After a century of rapid population growth, the world is getting older. But with fewer workers to subsidise healthcare and pensions, some speculate that shifting demographics spell trouble for the economy and our investments. I want to know whether the golden age of stock returns can survive the greying masses. And in today's dumb question of the week, how did old people survive before pensions? Okay, let's get into it. So it's time to talk about the aging population. This is partly because it could really affect our investment returns and partly because it was your birthday last week, Roman. <laughs> so these greying masses then, I suppose you're talking about me. You've been great for a while, I think. But we do seem to be at a little bit of an inflection point when it comes to this big macro change of population dynamics. Yeah, I mean, approximately we've had 10,000 years since the last ice age when the population's been growing. And if you look at GDP, if you could plot it 5,000 years ago, it would be steadily rising with the population. It is just the number of people times the production per person. I swear I've seen a graph where you did plot GDP 5,000 years ago. (laughs) Was that the Bank of England one? Yeah, I think the Bank of England isn't quite that old. But what's really odd at the moment is we're approaching a period when we're going to get peak child. In other words, a peak number of children and the population's going to start levelling off, perhaps, for the first time, well, pretty much ever. There have been hiccups along the way, I think. So the Black Death was the big one, which kind of almost halved the population in Europe, for example. And that did cast a shadow of the economy for a hundred or so years after that event. But that's a nice example of how a fallen population can affect GDP. So the only way to have GDP remain positive is for people to become more productive. If you haven't got more workers, each worker has to just produce more stuff per hour. And as you say, this is a big change from the story we've had, particularly over the last 100, 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, where a lot of economists have talked about a demographic dividend. And this was the growth in population that we got after the Second World War. We had the baby boomers. And again, this provided a natural tailwind for GDP growth. If you've got more workers, they don't necessarily have to be very productive. They just have to buy stuff, do stuff, and GDP will go up. And that's the point. It's not just the fact that the population was getting bigger. It's that the working age population relative to the total population was much higher. We had this big cohort, the baby boomers who, as they grew into adulthood, swelled the population of workers, grew the economy, and therefore allowed more money to be spent on public services and to pay for the relatively small amount of old people. But now we're in a situation where the baby boomers, that massive cohort, are the old people, and it looks like the share of the population that's of working age is going to shrink over time. And what people often look at is something called a dependency ratio, which is the number of people who are in work and eligible for work of that age group compared to the people who have retired. But also children, of course, because children can't work. Sorry, children can work. We just don't let them. (laughs) (laughs) And I think what we saw along with this demographic dividend was a switch in the structure of the economy. So we went from a largely rural, agrarian society with high fertility and high mortality rates. So people had a lot of babies and a lot of people died young. We went from that to an urban industrial society where we had relatively fewer babies and we lived much longer lives. And I've seen this in my own family tree. If you go back 100 years, 
really big families. And this really stopped with my grandfather's generation. He was the first generation in my family which had less than six children, for example. And again, they came from Birmingham and they worked in the metals industries in Birmingham. And they'd moved from the countryside to the city. And presumably that meant a big improvement in their quality of life relative to an agrarian existence. Yeah, in the West, it kind of happened all before our times, really, didn't it? That mass industrialization. But in China, for example, it's been within our lifetimes when we've seen that big shift to an urbanized economy. Yeah, for example, I used to work with someone in investment banking and her family was Chinese and they'd lived in one of these communities which was absorbed as Beijing grew really rapidly. So they became property millionaires as a result. And they remember it all happening because, of course, it happened in their lifetimes, like you say. And what we're talking about here is kind of an inversion, really, of what a lot of people might have heard about when it comes to populations. Like for a long time, the panic was there's going to be too many people. Is the earth going to be able to sustain this? And, you know, China, for example, had the one child policy to try and stop people having more children. But now what we're talking about is that restriction and low fertility might really be a problem for the economy in many ways. And China is facing up to that fact now. Their population is going to get older in a way that's much more stark than other countries. And in a sense, it's already happening. If you look at dependency ratios in China, they're already increasing such that it doesn't look like a young population anymore. So things like saving for retirement, but also having insurance for when you do get ill and having a pension, all of these are kind of new to China. So I think that could be an interesting demographic change in China as well. Certainly the integration of China into the global economy. So they joined the World Trade Organization in 1997. That was a key fact in expanding global labour supply. And since 1991, in fact, the effective global labour supply has doubled. And that's, yeah, partly to do with China, but also the fall of the Soviet Union and the integration of Eastern European workers, and also these positive demographic trends in advanced economies. But now a lot of those things are either going to reverse or they're just over. So we are going to probably see the labour force shrinking, which is a situation we've never really been in. Now, it's not true that this is happening universally. So many countries in the West, for example, are seeing this ageing demographic. China is as well. And if we look at the countries with the youngest demographic, it's mostly countries in Africa, some Asian countries as well. So for example, Niger, Mali, Chad, Angola, Uganda. So who knows, perhaps the fact that we've got immigration from these countries will not be seen as a negative forever. Perhaps we'll move to a situation in which one of the exports of these countries is young people. If we just step back a little bit, the global population today is around 7.8 billion people. Now that's expected to grow to just under 11 billion people by the end of the century, so by 2100. That's 40% higher than today. So you might think, well, what are you talking about? Like the population is going to grow massively over the next 80 years. Why is this a problem? But the problem isn't the fact that there's more people. It's that that population is going to be much, much older than it is today. So just by 2030, it's expected that one in six people in the world will be older than 60. So that's an increase from around a billion today to 1.4 billion in 2030. And by 2050, it's expected that the over 60s population will double and be more than 2 billion people. And the population over 80 will be triple today's level, at almost half a billion. 
So it's less the raw population number and it's more the percentage of that population that's what we would typically consider to be working age. Now, I think partly this is a problem of the overhang of the big population surge which we had in the past. So presumably what we're moving towards, what we're transitioning towards, is a new steady state in which a certain number of people are born each year, a certain number of people die each year, and then we've got a dependency ratio which is stable. At the moment, I think what we're seeing is the almost like a hangover after a party when we had lots of population growth. So really, this is just a transition phase, I think, to a more steady state in which the population becomes more stable globally. Yeah, the concern is the transition phase could be really bumpy, both for economies and for market returns. And typically, this is the kind of thing we're very bad at planning. When you've got a slow demographic shift, which everyone can see, it's like global warming. It's a very difficult thing to plan for because what it means ultimately is putting aside present consumption in order to plan for things in the future, which nobody likes doing. Nobody likes saying, well, for the sake of my grandchildren, I'm going to take a hit on my lifestyle. Yeah, you're right. And it's one of the weird things that in all the uncertainties of markets and economies, the change in population and the dispersion of that is really, really predictable. We know who's in the population now. And we can sort of add one year to their age (laughs) each year and see who's going to be alive 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years into the future. And if we just touch on why is the population aging? Well, for one, there's been declining fertility for a long time. So over the last 50 years, fertility has declined in every single country in the world. And what do we mean by fertility? Well, we just mean how many children is the average woman having in her lifetime? To keep the population steady, that needs to be around 2.1 children per woman. That's the replacement rate. But most countries are way, way below that now. So in what are classed as high-income countries, the fertility rate is around 1.6 at the moment. But it's not just declining fertility that means the population is ageing. The other obvious one is increased longevity. People are living longer and It really is a massive change. So global life expectancy has risen from 34 years back in 1913 to more than 70 years today. And that's including all the countries where there are still problems with people dying young. And the UK's contribution to that is that our life expectancy actually fell, I believe, during the last couple of years. Not by a lot, but a little bit. I believe that's the COVID effect, though. Yeah, true. That will sort of work its way out of the system. But I think it is true generally that longevity has slowed down. Many people were extrapolating into the future because they saw people's life expectancy increasing steadily over time. But I think what will happen eventually is that we're going to reach a new plateau. So I think, again, that's a transitory thing when medicine can help to a certain extent. And then after that, we're kind of stuffed. Certainly in the United States, life expectancy has genuinely been falling, not just because of COVID. It's other things like obesity, poor access to healthcare, and increasingly abuse of opioid drugs. But that's kind of a bit unique to the United States. But I take your point that other countries in the West have seen their increases in life expectancy slow down. I guess the danger comes if we have some kind of health revolution that really does add another 10 years to our lives, you know, whether it's these <laughs> anti-obesity drugs or whatever it might be. Like, it's a good thing if we can get people to live longer, but it just exacerbates this trend of an aging population. 
And the key point here is about productivity. If you're getting old and you can still work, you're still productive, then it's not really an issue at all. You can still grow GDP, you can be economically active, buy stuff, do stuff. So really, if we can extend the period of life over which we are productive, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. This whole concept of dependency depends on being so clapped out, you can't do anything. (laughs) And at a certain point in life, I think that'll always be true. You either don't want to, or you're just not physically up to it. But what we have seen, I think, is a longer period of time during which you can still do stuff. You know, you compare that with my grandparents' generation, and they were much less active, I think, than people in their 60s and 70s nowadays. It's true. But if you look at it from a cold, hard facts point of view around public finances, the tax take from older generations is much, much lower than you get from a working age person on average. So if you're looking to fund expensive health care for more and more old people, pensions for more and more old people, social care, it's exponentially harder to do when you've got more old people and less working people. I think some of the jobs that older people have to do now is look after the kids of their children. So it's like free childcare where you're not going to get paid a salary to do it. Yeah, I mean, none of this conversation should be construed as the fact of saying old people are useless and all that. No, they're great. But it is something that economists worry about. So the IMF, for example, has published research on this. The one I read through is aging is the real population bomb. And they talk about all these effects where the concern is that we're just not going to be able to afford as societies to support the older people. So if there's a lack of human financial and institutional resources, is what the IMF says, then it could mean declining quality of life for older people. So it's not this argument you usually hear of, oh my God, the boomers have stolen all our wealth or whatever. It's the fact that as more and more people get older, how are we going to have the productive capacity to support everyone? And I think what was worrying when you look at those demographics is if you look at the older people who are going to exist in the future, a lot of them won't come from high income countries. They'll come from underdeveloped countries. Now, of course, in those countries, there'll be a lot more onus on the families of the people who are getting older to look after them. So that's going to be a drain on family finances. Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the figures for 2050, where it's estimated that there'll be more than 2 billion people in the world over the age of 60, two thirds of those over 60s will be living in low and middle income countries, as you say. And I think it's quite clear when you look at the research that ageing populations do impact economic growth. I mean, everyone points to Japan as the obvious example. They were the first country to really experience this ageing effect. And they've had almost no economic growth now for 30 years. And also no immigration. Yep. So just to put some numbers around this, there's a study from 2023 called Population Ageing and Economic Growth. And that suggests that ageing populations are going to be a pretty big drag on GDP. They think it's going to subtract 0.8 percentage points from GDP per capita growth. And that's for OECD countries for this period between 2020 and 2050. So that's the next 30 years. And although 0.8 percentage points doesn't sound like a lot, it really is cumulative over time. Yeah, it is a lot because they estimate that the average OECD GDP per capita growth over that time would be just 2.5% annually without population aging. So if you're taking 0.8 off of 2.5, it doesn't leave you with too much. 
And that has huge consequences for things like asset prices. For example, if you look at long-term yields, those are very much driven by nominal GDP growth. So aging is disinflationary. You don't buy as much stuff, and that doesn't push up prices as much. And also, it's growth negative, as we saw. Both of those effects push down yields. So while there was a possibility of living off bonds in old age, I think the yields just are not going to be able to cut it if that's what's going to be driving yields in future. There's a nice quote from that paper, which I'll read to you. It says, When these large cohorts leave working ages, labour quantity will decline and resources that otherwise could promote productivity will be bound for consumption at old age. Without sufficient migration or increases in functional capacity, education, automation and technological progress to compensate, the demographic dividend will be replaced by the demographic drag. That all sounds quite gloomy, doesn't it? I just have this image of people being looked after by robots and robots doing all the work. Maybe that's because I read too much sci-fi again. Well, that's what they mean by automation, isn't it? You can solve these problems in a number of ways. You can make older people more productive. And I just mean that economically. It's not a moral judgment. You could use robots to replace older people. So therefore, you kind of artificially increase the productive capacity of the working age population. Or you could bring in more people from abroad through migration. But you've got to do something, right? Isn't it funny that people were scared of robots replacing people and now they're scared of immigrants replacing people? But really, something's going to have to replace those people if we can't produce the babies ourselves. If we want to maintain the same standard of living that we're used to. And that's the real rub, isn't it? I think people just aren't willing to accept a lower quality of life, a lower standard of life than their parents had. And that assumption may have to... Just go by the wayside. No, I think it won't go by the wayside. And people will come around to the idea of robots looking after them or immigrants helping the economy. I guess we should temper this analysis when we're looking at the research, because it is hard to do this research. Because like we say, we've never really had a situation where working age populations are falling before. All the research tends to do is look at how much the growth in working age population over the last hundred years has improved the economic growth and then sort of say, well, the same will happen in reverse. But maybe not. Maybe it's a one-way effect. You could hope that, right? It's interesting that the Black Death, which is something you mentioned earlier, people demanded higher wages as a result of that Black Death. And there were big social changes. The feudal system had a bit of a shakedown. didn't go away at that point, but it certainly got challenged. So perhaps this is similar. If you are able to work, if you're one of those lucky few who can go to the workplace, then Maybe they'll command higher status, but also higher wages. That's an interesting point, because what you mentioned earlier about yields probably being depressed over the long term because of this ageing phenomenon, what seems to me to be one of the big uncertainties here is inflation. Is an ageing population going to be deflationary and therefore depress yields? Or is it going to be inflationary because the working age population will demand higher salaries? And no one really seems to know the answer to that from what I can see. I don't think you can really guess, because as you say, this has never happened before. We've got a lot of history, but for the whole of history almost, except for those blips like disease and wars, the population has been steadily growing. Yeah, and that's the thing that's kind of concerning from an investor point of view, is that we say that all of history shows that over the long term, stocks rise, you benefit from risk premium if you're an investor, and you can compound this growth over time. But that's all been at a time 
when populations have been increasing. If we reach this inflection point where working age populations are shrinking in the West, does that change our outlook for investments? And I don't think you can predict it. I don't think you can know for sure whether that's true or not. And certainly things like risk premium. If you read the research on risk premium, which is the additional income you receive for owning stocks, it's larger than people expect. And it's unexplained. People don't know why it's so big as it has been. And if it went away, then we'd be equally flummoxed, but just left looking at something which had disappeared. Yeah, I kind of have this weird suspicion that if we were still doing this podcast in 100 years time and we were like oh my god the returns over the last 100 years since we started doing this podcast have just been dismal for equity (laughs) we would probably be saying oh we should have seen it coming we could see population declines was coming that was obviously going to affect equity returns but this is all assuming that we don't get some kind of technological shift which completely transforms the economy which has happened fairly consistently in the past yeah So something that makes us more productive, maybe nanotechnology, perhaps moving off the planet would be another one. It is lucky that artificial intelligence seems to be coming into itself right at the time we need it. Well, the thing is, artificial intelligence is software. It's not physical stuff. So unless you can marry that with robotics, then I think there's a problem. It's all very well having an artificially intelligent system. But if your toilet's blocked, or if you need more food to be grown, then that's not a lot of help. Yeah, but if we have artificial intelligence, which is super smart at software and doing the kind of intellectual work, and can replace all us white-collar workers and do all our podcasts and program all our software, then it would free up us lot to be working in the fields and unblocking toilets. So am I going to have to be a plumber? No, by this time, you'll be collecting your pension. You'll be all right. (laughs) But it's true, though, isn't it? Is that the benefit of AI could be just in a freeing up capacity kind of way. Yeah, I think that's true for certain jobs. But I think what will ultimately happen is it will be married with some kind of physical technology, and that will be robotics. But we're seeing that come on leaps and bounds as well. So there is a lot of hope to be had from technology here. Yeah, and I think that'll probably be what saves us. It'll ultimately be a matter of technology making us more productive, whether we want to be or not. Isn't that the story of human history, though? Technology ultimately saves us. Like, we wouldn't be able to support our rapidly expanding global population if we hadn't invented the plough and tractors and electricity and, like, be able to just free people from the farms. Another big one, actually, was the Haber process by which they made ammonia. If we didn't have the Haber process, and we weren't able to make ammonia-based fertilisers very cheaply then, you know, we would have to cover most of the planet in fields just to feed everyone. That's too much Greenbelt, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, we've tried not to be too doom and gloomy here, and I'm generally an optimist. I don't think instinctively equity returns are going to be crushed by bad economic growth and older populations. And there's actually quite a lot of research which looks at the relationship between economic growth rates and stock returns And there doesn't seem to be a clear relationship, really. It's not the fact that you need really fast GDP growth to see good equity returns. Now, I remember in 2015 when there was a paper published by the San Francisco Fed called Boomer Retirement, Headwinds for US Equity Markets. And there was so much discussion of it because people were pretty shocked, I think. What they actually did was pretty simple. They just looked at the dependency ratio over a long period of time, and they plotted it versus price-to-earnings multiples. 
how many dollars you're willing to pay for every dollar of profit. And it's almost a measure of euphoria. However, what they showed was interesting. They showed that the two vary very slowly and they vary roughly in sync, such that when you've got lots of working age people in the population, you've got higher price to earnings multiples. But when you've got a more aging population, an older population, the price to earnings multiples fall. And that was a paper from 2015. Because I don't know how that would look if you updated it today, where we've got older populations, but the PE ratio in the US is particularly high. The fundamental problem here is you've got two slowly varying time series, and really you've just got like two or three data points there. So I don't think it's very robust statistically. So I've certainly got big issues with the quality of that research. The argument behind it, like the logical argument, is that when you've got lots of working age people, that benefits stocks, not just from an economic activity point of view, but because younger people, people in their 30s, 40s, are more likely to be net buyers of stocks as they're accumulating wealth. Whereas older people in their retirement are more likely to be net sellers of stocks. So they're selling stocks to fund their lifestyle as they draw down on their pensions. So just logically, if you've got more people at the younger age of the spectrum, there's going to be more money on a net basis going into the stock market. So that's the kind of argument behind this, I think. Exactly. And for the bonds, the argument is kind of similar. If you've got people who are selling their stocks, what do they buy? They buy government bonds because they're safe. And that pushes up prices and it pushes down yield. So the yields will generally be lower if you've got an older population. However, I think there are some serious problems with that. Firstly, I think that it doesn't make sense to be hugely de-risked for the whole of your retirement. It makes sense early on when you've got that sequencing risk to de-risk your portfolio. But once you've gone past that, I think having a 100% equity portfolio in your 70s, 80s, 90s isn't so bad. And a lot of people do that. Yeah, it might not make sense to sort of dramatically de-risk throughout your retirement. But I think the stats show that most people do to some extent. Yeah, if you look at the glide path from Vanguard, you'd expect that octogenarians are really risk averse. But the people I've spoken to, certainly in our community, see the value of having equity over a long period of time because it does carry on compounding. And certainly the back tests show that If you do have a portfolio that's heavily into equities, that usually performs better once you get past this critical period close to retirement. So what you're saying is, if more and more people understand that fact and invest rationally, as you might put it, then this effect of being net sellers of equities in retirement might not be true? Yeah, because people will not de-risk as they grow older. And a lot of the wealth, of course, is in the hands of older people who've accumulated more wealth over their lifetime. So I don't buy the argument that just because the population's older, that people will be de-risking. I don't think that's true. It's certainly true, as you say, that older people own a lot of the wealth. So if we just look at stocks and mutual funds, almost 80% of those in the US are owned by people over the age of 55. And around 38% of stocks and mutual funds are owned by people over the age of 70. So a lot of this wealth is in the hands of older people. So you better hope they're not going to be big net sellers. (laughs) Otherwise, that would push down stock prices. So certainly in the US, there's been a lot of discussion of the great boomer wealth transfer. As boomers die and they leave the money to their kids, there was a question of how efficient that transfer is going to be. But certainly if the money passes on to the kids, the kids are probably going to invest in stocks. 
or keep it invested in stocks because that's the other reason why older people might not sell down their portfolios because they want to hand them on intact. In which case, there wouldn't be a fall in the price to earnings multiple. So I think there are a number of reasons why I don't really buy into this argument. It's one of those arguments that on the face of it, when you first read it, you go, oh yeah, Jesus, that's exactly what's going to happen. And then you think about it a bit more and you're like, eh, maybe not. You've also got foreign investors who might be coming in and putting money into US stocks. It's not just about domestic wealth here. And there's actually a nice quote in that paper you mentioned from the San Francisco Fed where they talk about how even if this was the case, that younger people are buyers and older people are sellers of stocks, why would that move the price to earnings ratio? Because this is all predictable. Like we said, we know where demographics are going to be within quite tight margins of error. And so the San Francisco Fed, they say, demographic trends are predictable and efficient markets should anticipate the impact of these changes on asset demand. Consequently, current asset prices should reflect the anticipated effects of demographic changes. And to me, that's absolutely true. It's all priced in. Yeah, it's all priced in, right? If it was inherently unpredictable, then you could say it's not priced in. But this should be predictable. Which moves us on nicely to the idea of how to invest in these demographic shifts, which I think is actually very difficult. Yeah, that's the other thing, isn't it? As investors, you think, oh, this potentially nasty effect is coming. Well, how can we make money out of it? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And it's actually very difficult because if you do buy something like one of these thematic ETFs, which looks at companies which benefit from an aging population, you're not the first person to have done this analysis. So just to unpack what these ETFs are, they're things like iShares Aging Population ETF. Which has the brilliant ticker AGED, A-G-E-D. There are actually two versions of the fund. There's one that trades in sterling on the London Stock Exchange. The ticker for that one is AGES, A-G-E-S. So A-G-E-D is in dollars, A-G-E-S is in sterling. And if you break down what it invests in, it's really interesting. So this is a passive fund. The fee is 0.4%, and it tracks the Stock's Global Aging Population Index, which in turn only invests in companies that get a lot of their revenue from certain themes. And these are aging population, automation and robotics, digitalization and breakthrough healthcare. So again, lots of assumptions there in the construction of the index. Yeah, iShares says they're targeting companies that specifically provide products or services to the world's aging population, defined as people aged 60 years or above. So what kind of companies are in there? So just looking through the top 10 holdings, it's interesting that there are lots of wealth managers. UBS, for example, is the largest holding, I think. As you'd expect, lots of healthcare companies as well, and also insurance companies, because presumably you need life insurance, even if you're retired. And a couple of travel agencies, Expedia and Booking Holdings. Yep. So if you're still in the go-go years, you're going to be traveling a lot once you've retired. So the basic theme here is old people have money, so we want financials. Old people get sicker, so we need healthcare. And old people have a lot of time on their hands, so they're going to travel around. <laughs> Pretty much sums it up. I mean, just looking at some of our friends, I think one thing that is true is they just spend more time doing stuff they enjoy. That's what retirement is, after all. So things like concerts, things like travel, like you say, and leisure activities, I think those are also important things which you could look at investing in. All right, it all sounds kind of plausible. But is this really going to outperform? 
It hasn't. (laughs) And I think that's the problem. We're not the first people to have thought of this. Everybody's been noticing this ageing demographic. And that's why pharmaceuticals typically have high price to earnings multiples, because these are the companies that are going to be servicing this ageing population with drugs to keep them shuffling on. But financials have much lower price to earnings ratios, typically. Yeah, that is interesting. So perhaps more wealth management and less investment banky, blowy-uppy, derivative-y type investment activities. And that's certainly been one of the changes we've seen in the strategies of investment banks, which is a move more towards wealth management and away from those potentially explosive derivative activities. I mean, just from my point of view, I always tend to think to move away from just a broad index tracker into something like this, you'd have to be really, really convinced about the logic for outperformance. And I just, I don't know. I don't think it's there. We don't know with any certainty that this is the way it's going to go. And again, it's always about what you've priced in. And thematic ETFs consistently get this wrong because people overpay for them. By the time it's a thematic ETF, it's already over. Although in this case, it's ongoing. Do you think there are any tilts to a portfolio that might make sense to take account of this demographic shift? Because some people say that we should be putting money into emerging markets because they tend to be younger on average, population-wise, than the West. Therefore, they might have better growth and their young people might come up with more technological innovations. Like maybe that's where our money should be, or certainly we shouldn't ignore EM. I think EM and frontier markets. And I think it's frontier markets where you see really rapid population growth still, rather than EM, which is dominated by countries like China, where we are starting to see ageing. So I think that's certainly one thing to look at. If you are confident enough and brave enough, then frontier markets may offer this demographic dividend in the future, either directly or indirectly via people moving to developed markets and sending money back home, maybe. Certainly migration could be one of the things that bails out the world here. And there's a quote from the IMF where they say, there would appear to be considerable scope for international migration to relieve demographic-related pressures. And the stat they use to back this up is that over 96% of the world's population still live in the country of their birth. So there's a lot of people that could move around and emigrate if they wanted to and were allowed in. And here's the problem, I think, which is that that's become much less politically acceptable. But if I did have to make one bet on what's going to change long term, you just look at a map of a global ETF and half of the map is grey. It just doesn't exist. Africa is almost like an invisible continent, except for South Africa. So I think capital markets eventually will spread to all corners of the globe. And that's probably the biggest change that will happen over, if not my lifetime, probably yours or certainly your kids. Let's hope so. I think that would be great for the world to have more involvement in capital markets and hopefully raise the living standards of people living in those countries. And I suspect we'll get stronger ties through migration, partly through climate change and people having to move, and partly because we're going to need those people. So let's look at Japan, who's the kind of poster child for demographic change. Their population is expected to decline by 40% between 2020 and the end of the century. That's a fall from 126 million to 75 million. That's a big gap to plug if you don't allow any migrants in. It's not just Japan. Like Italy and Spain are expected to lose 34% and 29% of their populations, respectively, over that century. 
So that's certainly a choice. But I think that ultimately countries which do decide to put up barriers to anyone moving through their country will ultimately pay the price, both in terms of growth, but also in terms of population. By definition, they'll become a lower population country and less relevant to what's going on in the world. Now, in Pensioncraft, we certainly have a lot of those retirees as part of our community, but we've also got quite young people as part of our community who are still investing for their pension. So to join the community and add your voice to ours, then simply go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is how did old people survive before pensions? Short answer, they died. Okay, that's the uh, end of today's episode, everyone. (laughs) Bye-bye. Have you been serious? There was just that? Well, I think until, until the idea of pensions came along, people just had to keep on working, and that was until they died. Or perhaps their family would have to look after them. So that was essentially the two choices you had. Yeah, or charity. There were things like almhouses in the UK, if you were lucky to get into one. Yeah, you had to be of upright character to live in one of those almshouses. We've got some in Amersham still. Beautiful cottages right in old Amersham. But I think the other thing is it's a cultural change in society that we now have old people's homes. It's interesting, the chap who cuts my hair, he's from Spain. And he says that in Spain, it's very much the case that people look after their families when they get old. And there's a whole inheritance thing with a house whereby... It's just assumed if you stay and sacrifice your life to look after old people, you inherit the house. That's the way it works. Do you have to be related to the person or can I just go and help out old people in Spain? I don't think you do. (laughs) That's what he was telling me. You don't have to be related. How many old people's houses can I look after in one (laughs) one go? (laughs) You're already monetizing this, aren't you, Michael, in your own mind? (laughs) But certainly in the past, that was the case. It was brutal, but that's the way it was. And it wasn't until we got introduction of pensions in the 1900s in the UK that that changed. Yeah, so I looked into this. 1908 was when the first pension was introduced in the UK. And it was only for people aged 70 plus. That was only 5% of the population, which is vastly different to today. But still, it was half a million people who queued up at their post office and collected the first state pension. But it was only if you were deemed to be of good character, (laughs) which I like. The government's just going to define who that is. Most of the retirees I know would not qualify. (laughs) Yeah. Because I see that you're not allowed to be habitually drunk. Yeah, you can't be drunk and you can't have been to prison in the last 10 years, I think, were the rules at the time. And weirdly, the pension could be refused if you had too much furniture. (laughs) Of the old people I know, no one would be getting their pensions. (laughs) Then in 1946, and it's not a coincidence that this happened just after the Second World War, the National Insurance Act introduced a state pension for everyone. And this was on a contributory basis. So you have to pay into it to get it. It started in 1948. Men were eligible at 65 and women could receive it from the age of 60. And this was at the same time that the NHS was being founded and was really the sort of overhaul of the welfare state. Personal pensions, I don't think, came until the mid-80s with the Financial Services Act. And then there's been loads of changes to pensions since then. The state pension age has been equalised between men and women. The triple lock was introduced, where the relative value of the state pension has been accelerating because every year it rises by the highest of inflation, Average earnings, or 2.5%, which 
just by definition is going to accelerate its value versus the working age population over time. So that's not sustainable in the long term, as much as politicians don't want to get rid of the triple lock. You can't have that forever. (laughs) And the big thing is it's been costing the state more and more money, as you'd expect, as we get more and more old people and the pensions are worth more. And if you just look at the stats, it's not hard to see why. So in 1909, there were half a million pensioners. And now there are around 12 million. And if you go back to 1909, when the pension was introduced, there were 10 workers for every pensioner. And now it's around four, less than four, I think. And lots of older people as well, right? So 1901, there were 1.2 million people over the age of 17. Now it's 8.8 million. And those people are expected to live a lot longer. So people reaching the state pension age were expected to live just nine more years in 1908, on average, whereas now they're expected to live 24 more years. So we've got to be supporting these people throughout their longer retirement. Now, it's interesting, the people I speak to, a lot of them are already in retirement and they don't want to stop work because it defines them. They carry on working, maybe just as a consultant, just to feel as if they're contributing and they are still contributing. Maybe just to earn below £12,500 per year. And yeah, there are obviously (laughs) optimizations that they can do. But the point is, a lot of people don't want to stop work. So I think the idea of retirement as stopping work is just not accurate. You just spend more time looking after your grandchildren. You spend more time doing stuff that you want to do. And that often involves some form of work. It's true. But we shouldn't overlook the fact that the nature of the state and state expenditure has changed. Many analysts have made the point that increasingly what the state will be doing is paying for healthcare and paying for pensions. That's going to be where a huge amount of our money is going. Maybe it's unavoidable and that's just the way it is. But it's worth thinking through the consequences of that. Yeah, I think certain generosities are going to have to go. For example, the triple lock is obviously one that's going to go by the wayside. Increasing the age of retirement, probably again, as we get older and healthier as we age then probably that'll also be increased steadily over time. Yeah, I think the bargain here with older people and those of us who will be old, hopefully, is that we get rid of the triple lock and maybe just link it to inflation or earnings, one or the other. But we promise that the retirement age will only increase when life expectancies increase. To me, that would be a nice trade-off. And it would make it cheaper, if you look at the stats, to do it that way. And I know it's controversial. I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but... What if it was means tested? Because if you've got someone who's a millionaire, look, they they can still claim their state pension. They see it as their right. But of course, they paid in their whole life. That's the point. No, I'm going to argue stridently for universal benefits, especially for pensioners. I think there's so many advantages to that structure, but we'll have to save the argument for another day. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.